0: This is Designing the Revolution, and it's chapter 13, Sociability in Action. Okay, so I've got a bit of a public announcement to make, which is that uh, I'm out of prison. And from now on, I'm going to be doing my chapters for the Designing the Revolution series uh, on YouTube, videoing them. And also as podcasts. So I'm hoping that's going to work out okay. Um, So if you're watching this as a YouTube video I am going to be looking at my notes every now and again so hopefully you can cope with that. Alternatively you can listen to it uh, on the podcast. Okay so I'm going to dedicate this chapter to Savvy um, who as some of you may know is no longer with us. This, this video or this podcast is going to be taking a little bit of a stock of where we're up to so far and if you've listened to the other podcasts and videos you'll know that we've started getting stuck into doing things and how to do them so we've looked at sociability, in terms of mobilisation, meeting design and what have you and then in the last few chapters we've looked at action, direct action, nonviolent direct action, how we design that. And what I want to do in this video is sort of bring them together and review the underlying logics paradigm below them. Now I could and arguably should have called this chapter Nonviolence and Violence. And I'm going to be discussing quite a lot why I haven't. <laughs> um, because what this what this chapter is really going to be about, or what it's going to be partially about anyway, is about framing. And we're going to be discussing framing quite a lot more because we're going to be looking at media and interviews and the press and what have you uh, in the next few chapters. But my argument is going to be is that when you accept a frame, if you accept the frame of someone who you're arguing against, You've already lost the argument. In other words, how you frame the question really determines the range of answers to that question. And if the range of answers to that question are all going to mean you're not going to be able to communicate effectively your argument, then you can't accept the frame that's presented to you. Because what a frame means, a frame is like a set of assumptions behind a question. Or a construction. And that set of assumptions is, without sounding too grand, is grounded in a metaphysics, a way of looking at the world. So, in some ways, this chapter is going to be a little bit on a tangent. And broadly speaking, I'm going to be arguing that sociability is coincidental with nonviolence and violence is fundamentally incompatible with the project. Now I'm not necessarily going to be totally convincing about that, but that doesn't really concern me. What I want to do is give you a taste of what it looks like to use this new frame that we've been constructing together over the last few podcasts and and see how it works when it, is in confrontation with another frame. So in one line what I'm going to be arguing is that the aggression towards another the aggression towards the other i.e. other people is in a fundamental and foundational sense aggression towards yourself. So that's, that's one construction Okay so let's just dive in. I'm going to dive in in various different ways and we'll see see how it all pans out. So let's just dive in. So let's look at this word violence. Okay let's look at the word violence. So what I want to suggest is if we said right we're going to debate violence and nonviolence, something's going to happen in your brain. So for many of you, you're going to think, oh right, Roger's talking about something political here. And this word political, we're going to be talking about this word political a lot. And when you, once you use the word political, a whole bunch of unconscious or semi-conscious ideas comes into your brain. So one idea is, is we're looking at something that's reductive. We're looking at a tool. We're looking at the idea violence. It's a thing, a reductive thing. And we're using it. Notice the word use. We're using it to do X. Or we've got this tool, nonviolence, and we're using it to do X in this in this abstract system about power conflict. So the analogy here is like physical. Um, it's like a thing. You do a thing to another thing. Um, and this is related to this idea that it's a tactic. You hear this all the time. You say, oh, you know, Roger Hallam's into using the tactic of nonviolence, you know, this tactic, that tactic. In other words, like it's a move on a chessboard. So the chessboard analogy is quite interesting because. You've got pieces. In other words, like it's, it's this atomized one thing, one move to another move sort of orientation of reality. And for a lot of people, I want to suggest that this way of looking at reality is quite addictive. And maybe the reason it's addictive is because it's simple. It doesn't take a lot of cognitive broad width. It's like here's the chess table you know chess board here's my pieces I can move that piece I can move that piece that's going to lead to that piece and it sort of gets complicated but it's fundamentally simple in the sense you've got these atomized elements in the space and they go like this so what I, what I want to suggest is this is the old paradigm and I've been talking about this, as you probably know, if you've been watching this podcast, I've been developing this theme of this old paradigm a lot, a lot. So here's here's a little summary of it. So if you're watching the podcast, I'm not sure how this is going to work, but I'm going to describe it in case you're not actually being able to see this. But it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? Here's us, right? And you have this tool, this red thing, which is separate from you, and you use it to sort of bash them, the opponent. Nice and simple, okay? So what I want to challenge you to do is to use your imagination to try and conceptualise a different way of looking at all of this. All right, so let's let's take another... You know, dive in from a slightly different angle. So, what what are we doing on these podcasts, uh, these videos? Okay, we're supposed to be talking about revolution, designing the revolution, and we've got an idea. This is a project. You know, it's actually going to lead to things happening. So, let's try and remember or delve into what what I've been arguing so far. So, one thing we've been saying is. This revolution project is fundamentally cultural. It's not reductively political in that reductive sense. What we're saying is we're looking at some wider range of social connections. And for the sake of argument, we're going to call this cultural. When we say the word cultural, we suddenly have a, a, wholly, a whole different ambience of meaning. Than political. When you say cultural, it's like, okay, there's lots of things coming into this space. You know, it covers lots of things. It's about going out for dinner, it's about having a chat, it's about, you know, putting on plays, it's about conversation. All right, this is cultural. Uh, When we talk about political, it's like sort of stuff. And once we talk about the cultural, there's an opening there to have another a different sense of what it is to be a human being is a slightly embarrassing phrase you know what is it to be a human being what sort of question is that but what I'm trying to say is like what do human beings do it opens if human beings are cultural beings they do all sorts of different things and they have this open complex range of agendas and motivations and reasons for doing things so we've got this central concept right of sociability and what sociability is sort of getting juxtaposed to is this idea of this atomized construction of reality which is this does this to this which creates this the sociability idea is this complex of connectivity uh, over time. This sort of mixing together of different human, human, humans doing things with different people with a plurality of different effects. So what I want to suggest, and we're going to look, about, look at this a little bit more, is let's think of the sociability frame as actually an ideology it's a it's a fundamentally different way of looking at the world to what you might call the dominant hegemonic paradigm of atomized physical power conflict so obviously ideology's got a bit of bad reputation so it's just a word so if we want to construct it as you know ideology being bad that's fine but i'd like to suggest that for our purposes we just say it's neutral, it's a system of looking at ideas, it's a set of ideas, it's a way of justifying different sorts of actions, it's a frame, it's like what's below, what's below our our arguments as you might say. And the advantage of this is that sort of enables us to see the way that we're taught to see things in society as another ideology. It's not reality, It's an ideology. It's simply a historically situated way of looking at the world. And in previous times, people looked at the world in a different way. And in the future, people will inevitably look at the world in a different way. There's nothing ahistorical about it. It's situated in a context. And this is the big move. I'm not saying necessarily it's right or wrong. I'm saying it's situated, it's, it's a thing, it's not everything. Okay, so let's develop what we've been doing with this sociability paradigm over the last few podcasts. So we've been saying, there's a project. So sociability is not just a description of what people do, it's also a programme of action to increase something, to develop something. It's situated in what we're calling the social space, in the meeting, in the conversation, uh, in the demonstration, uh, in the interview, um, in the chat in the kitchen. Um, so these are social spaces and and the general programme, as we said, is, is to de- first of all to acknowledge the connectivity that's happening and then design elements into these spaces that thickens and deepens and expands these levels of connectivity. So what does connectivity mean? You know the base of connectivity is is things which you may not notice because they're so ubiquitous, they're all over the place. So for instance like small talk. Small talk happens all the time. You know, I've got um, Jamie here. (laughs) Hi, Jamie. So I come into Jamie's, you know, uh, compartment uh, and I just have a little chat with him. We do it without thinking because that's what people do. I don't come into Jamie's flat and go, all right, I'm ready to start. If, you, if I did that, i would think I was a bit weird because it would be weird. So we have this like small talk thing. A lot of people don't like small talk, but let's face it, like everyone does small talk all the time, you know, to varying degrees. I mean, some people do loads <laughs> and some people don't do that much, but it's a fundamental part of human sociability in the same way as gossip is. So you've got gossip is like, what's happening with so-and-so? What do you think about so-and-so? Oh, so-and-so has done something and you like it and the theory behind small talk and gossip which are fundamental elements of human existence right we do them all the time they happen in authoritarian regimes they happen in in liberal regimes they happen 2000 years ago they'll happen in 2000 years like this is the baseline of what it means to be humans in connection with other people and um so what's behind this called into this paradigm of sociability is you do small talk because you want affirmation you want as classically defined you want love you want to know that someone's you know someone's attending to you they're asking you questions small talk in other words is a proxy for creating recognition and affirmation between people if you don't do that you start feeling really shit really quickly similarly with gossip gossip is not like you know years ago i used to think like gossip was a bad thing and of course in some ways it can be malicious and all the rest of it but fundamentally, like, it's inevitable. And it's inevitable because people want to know. They want to have this connection with other people. They want to know the story. What's the latest soap opera episode? What's the latest thing that's happening? And they want to engage in what you might call small-scale morality, right? You know, the, moral, the mor- morality of this move or th- that move. Is that person good at doing that? Is that person good at doing the other? Um, and what this does is it creates... This is the thickness of what Habermas calls the life world so I can't remember where I mentioned this guy but we'll be talking about him quite a lot so he's a major philosopher of the post war period so he's has has this this uh, conception of the life world so it's life right human beings in life and this is gets juxtaposed to um uh, instrumental rationality which is you know i'm doing this in order to do that when i come into Jamie's flat and I engage in small talk I'm not thinking oh if I say that I can get Jamie to do that it's like no I'm just shooting the breeze we're just establishing you know re-establishing and expanding our connectivity as you might say so what I'm trying to say here is this is something that's real it's real because it's there and what this paradigm of instrumental rationality does and related sort of phenomenon is they make this world invisible and because it's invisible obviously it's not acknowledged they, can't, they literally cannot see it if you're in this other sort of paradigm of what you might call politics power the sort of mutual suspicion the zero-sum game if I do this he'll do this I'll lose win lose sort of stuff and One word which encapsulates this idea is the grid. So you've got this mass of complicated shifting connectivities, and then you put this grid on it. And this grid is like the map, you know, the map, not the territory and that sort of idea. So there's this guy, um, David Graeber. So some of you read his books, I'm sure and again I can't remember if I mentioned this in another podcast so sorry if I mentioned this already but he has this hilarious idea of everyday communism uh, in one of his books and he's basically saying um, look you know you can make this outrageous claim that 50% of human activities are communistic even in you know liberal America and the problem is we just don't see it so if I have If I have, you know, lunch with Jamie after this and I say, oh, pass me the salt. Jamie doesn't go, well, if I'm going to pass him the salt, you better do something for me. (laughs) It's like, that'd be really dumb, right? So human beings do this all the time. So you have this world of give and take, you know, like, yeah, sure, here's the salt, you know. Oh, can I borrow that book? Sure, have, have the book. It's like this is what people do when they're in, in, in 90% of their social interactions. In other words, it's like these things belong to everyone. The salt, who cares? It's a book, who cares, right? Um, so what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do here is, is establish a new way of looking at the world that actually forefronts these relationships um, rather than this imposed grid. And if we develop it a little bit more, what we're sort of identifying is what sociability does is dissolves the polarisation between us and them. So, for instance, like I'm going to invite some people who I'm a little bit scared of and sort of my political opponents, and I'm going to invite them over for dinner. And we're going to engage in a sociability project, as you might say. Over dinner, we're going to be talking about our kids, we're going to be talking to... and we will find ourselves, I predict we'll find ourselves having a lot more connection with each other. And this us and them thing will start to dissolve. Not because of some power move or some top-down grid design, but because it just happens as a byproduct of this sociability design, as you might say. And this, so this, there's this us and them thing that starts to dissolve. The other thing is that this, the mechanism of this disillusionment this dissolving is is this process of dialogue so this can get formalized obviously like in mediation process for instance but let's just take this dinner party idea it's mo- there is an element of actually I don't agree with you and you listen to the guy and they say oh, that's really interesting you know and you summarize what he said and then you say well this is my perspective so you're not tr- trying to convince the other person necessarily and arguably not at all you're just like engaging in dialogue. This is what you think, this is what I think. So you're cr- increasing, instead of it being like this, you're increasing this connectivity. Well, I don't really like Roger Hallam, but that, that idea is quite interesting. And oh, that idea is quite, and it it's, the relationships relationship's becoming more complex. It's not like Roger Hallam bad, you know, me good. It's like Roger Hallam a mm, bit more maybe is, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe. Yeah, you know, there's more fluidity in in your orientation. It's more complex. Okay, so let's move along a little bit because you're probably thinking, what's all this got to do with nonviolence? For God's sake, get to the point. <laughs> all right. So so let's reconstruct the space of of social confrontation. In what you might call non-violent direct action setting. So let's look at sitting in a road. You're sitting in a road but we're going to construct this in a different way. So what we're going to construct it as is sitting in the road is a life-world action. What does that mean? What it means is when the public come in up to you and they shout at you um, there's a confrontation. But the confrontation is not a confrontation that reduces connection. Um, It's a confrontation that creates connection because what the person is doing is they're just sitting there being silent. Maybe they're summarizing about what you say. And if you actually observe this, because this is all about empirics, by the way, which we'll come on to in a minute. If you observe this, the person comes up, they're shouting at the person in the road, And the person's going, yeah, it's really terrible that you've had to wait so long. And if you watch that person over the process of 30 seconds, maybe two minutes, there's a high likelihood, obviously not every time, it's probabilistic, that they're going to calm down. Because the person is engaging in a dialogical orientation, they're not saying, well, you're a fucker as well. They're saying, yeah, 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 yeah. They're basically like drawing in what's called a jiu-jitsu orientation. In other words, what originally at the beginning of that confrontation, you've got this power, power sort of orientation. You know, I'm sitting on the road. I want to get to work. Then over three or four minutes, it goes into, actually, this is a human being here sitting on the road and he's listening to me. He's affirming me and... I cannot but help to enter into some sort of dialogical conversation. So it's like it's a life-world orientation as I might say. That's what's actually happening. Notice I'm not talking about politics here, right? I'm talking, maybe I'm talking about psychology, but maybe I'm talking about something deeper. What I'm doing is I'm introducing this 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 frame and applying it to a new situation to explain it in a new way. So let's let's say in this confrontation, the press, you know, there's a press down, the press come up and talk to people. Or let's say, you know, one of those people, they've glued to the road and then they go to the studio. And in the studio, the person's going to try and humiliate you, you know, what a stupid thing to do you're stopping people from getting to work you know you're just a, you're just being a total twat everyone hates you just go and get a job and you're sitting there and you're saying um not say number one not saying very much <laughs> you're saying yeah yeah i see what you're saying i see what you're saying you're summarizing then you're saying look, look this this is where i'm at this is my life this is my reality I'm not trying to win an argument you know, it's like at the dinner party. You're just like explaining wh- where where you're at. And you've got like a calmness about you, but also a realness about you because you're not actually making a very good argument and you might be looking nervous and twitching a bit and not getting your words in the right order because you haven't been in one of these funny interviews before. And the paradox is, or what this frame will say is, the life world is 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 entering into this uh into this hard world of instrumental rationality if you say this you win that argument if they if they say this they go you know they're trying this is how you humiliate them this is how you fight back and it's like what's actually happening empirically is is the interview can't help but get lost because you're not playing the game the interviewer wants but more interestingly the audience is even though they're not necessarily thinking this in a deeper sense they're realizing this is just a normal guy right and the the realization that this is just a normal guy might not enter into their consciousness until a few minutes later or maybe half an hour later or even two years later but the seed is planted this just a normal guy you know he's not really very good at interviews which is creates this connection a certain empathy because it's not about the arguments it's about oh yeah this is some some person and you can see this this creating like the a process of greater connection over and over and over again right the empirics are just I mean they could talk for hours of, about examples of that so how we might like to construct this from the sociability sort of ideology uh, frame is to say, the life world is is decolonising. You know, is this word, and you know, it's got some good points about using this word, some points not. But what I'd like to sort of be a bit pro- provocative and say is, you're entering into the into this territory of power politics, and you're decolonising its visceral dehumanisation by. Cr- introducing this humanization. So that's like, you know, it's an interesting take, isn't it? Let's, you know, we don't need to have a big argument about whether it's formally right or not. What I'm trying to do is, is go, oh, that's interesting. It's a new, new way of looking at it. All right, so next way, you know, next thing. Let's take a slightly different tact. All right, so let's look at the word violence again. So notice, I put that inverted commas around it. So we're sticking it up there. We're not, I'm not talking about violence, I'm talking about violence. <laughs> With inverted commas around it. Um, so we're gonna reflect on it a little bit. Okay, So let, let's, let, let me take a certain way into looking at this. So there's this notion of othering, right? There's this notion of dehumanization. There's a notion of us and them. So let's take an example of this. Let's take the example of slavery. So there's a certain way of looking at slavery. How is it that slavery can maintain itself as a social institution, as a sort of psychological reality? How how is it that people get into the headspace of dehumanising someone to the extent that they can have a slave, have a plantation? Okay so one way of explaining this is to say in order to treat someone like a slave that person has to be ripped, I quite like that word, ripped out of their environment, right, ripped away from their roots, taken physically away from their community, their locality, their state, their society and then they become a thing. In other words like a person isn't a person because they're a physical entity. A person is a person not because they're an atomized an atomized thing. A person becomes a person because they're embedded in a sociability context, a, a thick a fixed system of 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 connections, personal connections, legal rights, uh, memberships, um, you know, mean means of of communication. So again, you know, I'm slightly nicking this from David Graeber, and he's saying this. For him, this is, if I've understood him rightly, for him this is the essence of what slavery is. It, it's it's a ripping away, and this is, is what enables it to be continued. So this reminds me of what Tim Schneider said in his work about the the Holocaust, and he, you know one of the things he says is once. The Jews and the other people who were killed, murdered by the Nazis, the method of enabling this monstrosity to happen was the the dragging away, the physical dragging away of people from their localities. They're put on a train, they're taken from Hungary up to Auschwitz and what have you, right? So they're physically like dragged away from from their their, their situation. Their, space of sociability and also this happens legally they legally become non-persons because they're not a citizen of the state and what Schneider's saying is that once you become a legal non-entity which is a sort of proxy in a certain way for embedded in a certain sociability is it's easy to kill you because you don't belong anywhere you don't have rights Um, you're not you're not a person anymore you're a thing uh, and things can be disposed of so you can say a, you can see similar processes when you're looking at murder similar processes when you're looking at rape it seems like what what this thing violence is is it's, it's not a tool right it's a, it's a paradigm of 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 a ripping away of humanity people's humanity and people's connection and of course in some ways we can see recent history as not some reductive way of creating rights important as that arguably is but as a way of a journey towards trying to create greater sociability so if we look at slavery we can say you know if you look at the debate around slavery we can say at a certain point you know in the late 18th century the argument went along the lines of look there's always been slaves there's slaves in the bible there's slaves in babylon humanity means slavery it's always there and therefore it always will be and we we know the radical proposition has always been just because it's always been the case doesn't mean we don't have the existential freedom to say we're not going to have that in the future and surprise surprise that's the case you know at a certain point there was lots of slaves and at a certain point it was banned and obviously there's still slavery in the modern world but there was a fundamental shift uh, where slavery became illegal in many countries and became something that was absolutely not what you do from it's just the way the world is. so what I want to do to get into a bit more of the nub of what I want to talk about here is is, is we can see this process of the tabooization, as it were, of, um, of viol- things, which, things which are in this set of violence, uh, rape, murder, uh, slavery, that there's a process whereby it becomes a taboo and i mean that in a good sense you just don't do this it's like fundamentally metaphysically a no no and i think when people justify violence in in terms of in progressive left circles the reason why they can ent- entertain their argument and you lose if you use their frame is because there's an avoidance there's a a looking away from this empirical evidence that basically you're looking at you need to root your analysis in this ecology of connection and the degeneration and degradation of that ecology of connection and violence is rooted in that in that degradation So the way that is avoided, as I mentioned a few moments ago, is that when the left talks about violence, say, well, you know, things get really bad, violence is necessary, bum bum, bum 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 The underlying frame is, it's a tactic, it's something that you do, it's not something that you are, it's not a being thing, it's a doing thing, it's we engage in violence to do X. And. You've got this grid idea of mentioned, which is sort of abstract, right? It's an abstraction. So I want to give you an example of one of these discussions. I'd say every now and again, someone comes up to me and say, well, Roger, you know, what happens if they start being violent towards you? You've got to be violent back, you know, and all this sort of thing. And I had this conversation with this young guy. a very clever young guy. And, you know, he had all his arguments. He had all his ducks in a row. And he said, you know, bum, 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 bum. You know, certain circumstances, Roger, right where you need to use violence. If they're really bad, you need to use violence. And he said, what do you think? And I just said to him, well, the problem with violence is it hurts. It hurts. <laughs> anyway, so I made him laugh. And I want to analyse why he laughed, right, so what I want to suggest is he had this big, sophisticated, abstract system, you know, political system, violence was some sort of piece in that system and it did something else. And I said, it hurts. And his whole system collapsed, his whole abstraction collapsed, because he couldn't avoid the fact that if you engage in violence to someone, It hurts them right if someone hits you it hurts you in other words i brought him into the groundedness of the life world you know if i insult someone it hurts them you know if someone hits me it hurts me this sort of stuff and maybe this is a bit of a tangent but i think it's quite interesting so i'd also like to suggest is the reason why he um The reason why he was so dogmatic about this at a certain point Roger like in South Africa they had to be really violent was actually nothing particularly to do with this ideology the reason was psychological and the reason was was he was a very privileged white Western guy and this is psychological mechanism where these people who are very privileged and I'm, not, you know, I'm not trying to knock them. I'm just trying to explain why they do various things. They feel enormous guilt at their privilege, and they op- overcompensate for that guilt by becoming even more left-wing than the guys in the global south, and even more sort of radical and bang, bang, bang. And and in other words, it's a displacement for their guilt. So in 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 in. In other words, like they haven't really processed what they're doing. In other words, the reason he was into violence was nothing to do with violence, right? It was to do with his psychological need for recognition. Um, He wanted to be accepted as an okay guy because, after all, it wasn't his fault that he was born white, male, and in the Western world with loads of money, okay? Um, And this is a sort of distorted way of, of actually... Being attracted to the violent situation and what I was bringing him into was this sort of life world of actually what what actually happens when people are violent towards each other. All right so let's look at it in another way. You notice I'm not building up an argument here, well I sort of am but I quite like this idea, (laughs) I quite like this idea just coming from different directions. Okay so let's look at something else. Maybe I'm repeating myself. Do apologise if I am, but... OK, so here's something else. Um, so there's this book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. I think it's called that. So it's in the early 60s. A major, major book. And what they were saying in there was... This guy was saying, <laughs> it was a bit embarrassing, he was saying, look what happens with scientific revolutions is you don't have this model you know there's this model of scientists they get together and they're rationalists and they look at the evidence and they assess the evidence and this theory doesn't work anymore so there's lots of evidence for another theory so they adopt the other theory you know in a rational way of looking at the evidence they're saying like it was like a sociology of of, of the scientific profession and it's saying actually empirically that doesn't happen all the time what happens is is People get attached to a theory, this, this is the theory and they've got a certain amount of empirical evidence for it and then over time the empirical evidence increasingly shows it's a rubbish theory, it just it doesn't add up. But it doesn't matter because they're attached to it because it's part of their like psychological ego sort of world. And there's this phrase like science progresses one death at a time which is an extreme formulation of this is they never actually change their mind. They're supposed to be scientists, but in some ways they're the same as as southern racists in the nineteen sixties in the United States. They're not gonna change. The the reason why racism declines is new people get born and people die. So there's lots of evidence for this. And obviously you can take take it, you know, you might think it's taken to an extreme. But you can see what what I'm trying to say. So you what he's saying is is just the structure of scientific revolutions is, is there's this moment where the old paradigm just collapses. So it doesn't happen gradually. It's like at a certain point people know there's, the emperor's got no clothes. And the new paradigm just goes poof. And you've got a whole new way of looking at the world or looking at an area of science. And... Um, And in a way, this is an ideology, so a paradigm is in i'd like to suggest a paradigm is similar to an ideology it's a s it's a way of looking at the world and because we're human and our egos get attached to it, we simply aren't able to see this new paradigm. you know maybe we just die because you know even not being able to see it so so if you want to see this in action, you can watch this Navarra video held in like about a week ago. Uh, maybe we can put a link, well, we'll put a link at the bottom of this video, uh, uh, this series, um, this this podcast. Okay, so if you watch this video, it's actually a really frustrating video because um, Aaron, bless him, is going, I want to have a nice intellectual chat about know the process of social change and how we're going to sort out climate change and I'm saying I'm not talking about that what I'm talking about is our moral responsibilities at this time and Aaron you need to come out on a demonstration and we need to organize because it's an emergency and we've heard enough of the facts and I don't let go of my paradigm right in order to my paradigm is the life world the here and now the sociability the connectivity of me and Aaron, here and now, in this space, what are we going to do with the audience, here and now, in this space, in the territory, as it were, of, our, of of this time and place. And what Aaron wants to do is discuss the grid, like what are the concepts, how do they connect with each other, what's the theory of nonviolence, what does China do in this, cons- this political construction. So it's a big political paradigm above above the world and he thinks because he's an enlightenment man (laughs) that once we have a thorough understanding of this then it has some sort of moral status but there's very little empirical evidence for that and arguably there's hardly any. It doesn't matter people can have as much of a sophisticated analysis of the world as they like but it doesn't mean they're gonna take Jews in, in 1943. There's no empirical evidence they will. What enables people to engage in resistance is the sociability of a community of resistance. In other words, if Aaron's going to become embedded in actually actualizing his beliefs in socialism, he has to like get into the messy world of leading a march and having a confrontation with a policeman getting thrown into prison and all the rest of it but he doesn't want to go there and I don't think it's because he necessarily doesn't want to do that it's more that he's entered the interview with this frame and I've entered it into, into, into the, the, the interview with my frame but what's interesting what I'm trying to propose here in terms of something practical is when you're introducing the sociability frame into the social space you cannot compromise Right. This is this is a fundamental design principle. We talk about this more in the media podcasts that are going to come after this. You just don't you just don't move. And it's the process of just don't moving that finally breaks through. And as I say, it might break through in 10 minutes, might break through, you know, tomorrow. It might be two years in the same way as when you're on the road and you're refusing accept the degraded frame of confrontation with this person that's shouting at you and telling you you're a cunt and everything that frame you're using of I'm not engaging in that mode of interaction it might calm the person down in a minute half you might be going to bed that night and suddenly realize you're sort of okay guy or it might be in two years time the point is is to maximize the probability that your new frame is going to be accepted Is you have to stick to it, sort of religiously as it were. Um, And in the short term everyone will tell you a bit of a prat, you know, maybe, maybe not. Um, And interestingly enough in this interview, you look at the comments, people aren't, you know, some people are saying I'm a prat, but a lot of people are going, actually yeah, we do want to talk about what we want to do. Because the old paradigm of let's have a nice intellectual nineteen ninety-five, you know, two thousand and five chat about the climate because it's not really that real and we don't know whether it's real. Those days have gone and people know in their bodies the whole thing's fucked. And we actually fucking want to get something done here, right? We don't want to be sitting around listening to Navarro videos. You know. In other words, the new paradigm, like with this structure of scientific revolutions, the new paradigm is about to break through. But it's being held back because Aaron's paradigm is still in 2005 but what people really want to do is have a load of videos on on you know on the Media going this is what we're doing guys this is the person who's doing stuff let's all bring into breakout groups let's create some connectivity let's have some public meetings let's have a section of Navara videos on what you can do about it you see what I mean like that's praxis That's I argued to Aaron and what I'm arguing in these podcasts, in other words when when a revolutionary phase transition is about to happen, you get this this dissonance you know the, the scientist doesn't want to give up, and then suddenly it all collapses in one go so you know i'm at some point I'm probably going to end up having a chat to this guy sorry, I forgot his name um, who wrote. You know how to uh, how to blow up a pipeline right so every now and then people go oh Roger you should talk to this guy he did how to blow up a, p- a pipeline so I'll probably end up talking about this more in details but I just want to say something briefly about it is if and when I talk to this guy it's probably going to be a similar conversation to the one I had with Aaron in the sense that if you read his book his book in my view is totally embedded in the enlightenment, reductive, materialistic, us-and-them paradigm. There's no discussion of mobilisation, there's no discussion about sociability. It's it's a very, dare I say, male, intellectual, reductive construction of reality and it's not surprising that if you have that construction as we said if you accept that frame it's very difficult to argue against why you shouldn't go and blow up a pipeline because at the end of the day it's a material thing there's the pipeline it's taking oil stop it therefore there's no oil right completely physicalist but the empirical evidence is that's all bollocks that's not how social change works social change is yeah obviously there's physicality in in the social system but physicality is a construction in and of itself, right? The material world is a construction and that construction is embedded in a whole load of social constructions and relationships. In other words, like using the wrong paradigm. And that's why your Pyrrhic are so fucked, right? Because it doesn't work, right? There's overwhelming evidence, the strategy of engaging in violence, in inverted commas, right? Remember what violence is. And violence is, is a process of different orientations, psychological, physical, in a social system. It's an uprooting and a degeneration of, of sociability. That paradigm recreates a reduced level of connectivity in other words it reproduces violence rape murder slavery so i'm going to you know finally get on to some epirics. right why not so i'm going to use a specific one and let, you know i'm going to give a specific example and then i'm going to give you some of the top line stats so the specific example which is probably one of the most embarrassing moments in left-wing theory and practice is Lenin's uh, book, I think he wrote it in 1917, called State and Revolution. I dare say I haven't read it, so you might want to give me a hard time on it, but I've heard people talk about it and I don't want to get into, you know, there's lots of details in it, but the fundamental proposition is this, is we're gonna have a revolution, absolutely, and we're going to engage in violence because we've got to overcome the ruling class. Then we're going to get hold of the state. And then XXX is going to happen, which is a little bit unclear. And the output is going to be a stateless society. The withering away of, stat- of the state, as Marx called it. So Lenin was following this general Marxist orientation. And Marx, you know, arguably does the same thing, which is, this XXX bit isn't really that clear. But it's clear what the, the, the hypothesis is, right? It's a hypothesis. You know, you engage in revolution, you engage in violence, you take a hold of the state and that leads to a stateless society which is communistic and full of presumably intense connectivities, you know, the utopian left vision. Right, fair enough. So what actually happens? What actually happens is they have a revolution. They use loads of violence and um take control of the state and by 1922 this this massive amount of violence the state becomes even more of a state and progressively through the 1920s you end up with stalinism and the show trials and millions of people being proactively starved to death and shot in the gulags and all the rest of it right So within its own terms, it's a a total disaster, assuming you're actually looking at the empirical evidence. So let's look at headline stats. So a headline stat, probably the most important stat in social science over the last 20 years, is this stat, which is Erika Chenuev, sorry, I've forgotten the other person's name, in Why Civil Resistance Works. So this is the most important stat in this book, is is that if you're engaging in a violent revolution and just be suspicious of these words okay because i've just spent half an hour trying to get rid of these words but violent revolutions violent uprisings they work okay 24 percent of the time but the critical stat is five years later there's either a civil war or there's an authoritarian dictatorship or the social collapse or some combination of the two in other words you've only got one chance in 20 of using this strategy to empirically create something that's got a reasonable claim to be better than what you had before the revolution and this is what 300 data points so if you want to doubt this and a lot of left people do it's similar to Similar to sort of climate denial, you know you've got a half thousand papers saying carbon produces a higher temperature. well, you can always cherry pick one or two little bits and pieces, but it's scientifically and is scientifically illiterate, right so obviously social science as we've said several a lot of times is 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 probabilistic obviously right it's not it's not a it's not a law it's not like one you know if temperature rises along. Above zero degrees centigrade ice melts, it's not like that it's probabilistic, but it's overwhelmingly probabilistic, right you know, in the same way as if you beat and and isolate children, then you'll do their heads in uh and you'll destroy their their later life maybe not you know maybe five percent of kids survive those experiences, but the overwhelming number of kids don't. That's what you might call social law. So there's this social law. So why why, why? Why are the empirics like so strong against this strategy of, of the engagement in the violent paradigm, right? So there's a bunch of explanatory observations, and again, explanations on airtight, but they give what you might call a family familiarity with what the dynamics are and these dynamics are all interrelated so let's just go through them like if you engage in violence as soon as you engage in blowing up pipelines and what have you um, you have to have secrecy because the state has to has to not know about them beforehand because that's critical you know if you're going to do a violent raid on a police station Obviously, you don't go and tell the police station, right? (laughs) What violence does, uh, what secrecy does, is it facilitates hierarchy, right? First of all, because if you have a a secret system, it's really important that some people, not many people know what's going on. So you have a need-to-know basis, a need-to-know basis. This is familiar social dynamic. As soon as you have lack of openness in the system, lack of accountability, then you have abuse, you have corruption, you have hierarchy, you have patriarchy, um the blokes take over basically. Which is related to another thing that well, if you if 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 your if your, um general strategy involves you know street violence and all the rest of it, then statistically you will know that young kids aren't there, old people aren't there, and as a general rule, women aren't there. In other words, young men come to the fore. Okay. Um, again, it's probabilistic. There are women there. But if you juxtapose that to what you might call a classical civil resistance scenario, there's loads of kids, there's loads of women, there's loads of old people. In fact, the young men aren't actually that important. What the young men should be doing, arguably, is you know, making the sandwiches in the home camp. It's a completely different paradigm. Why is this? Partially, partially, obviously, it's because violence excludes participation. It's also because violence creates high cost to entry. You know, Partially, this is because you have to be trained. If you're going to use a rifle, you can't just go to the street. It's partially because it's fucking scary, because it hurts. Who wants to participate in, in street battles, right? It's partially because there's a machismo atmosphere. You know, it's we are the army you're just some bods, we're going to do the main work here, you just stand aside, mate. So there's a whole load of physical psychological barriers of entry which, which undermines participation and participation, as we're going to discuss many times, is, is the numbers going. The more people engage in civil resistance, the more likely you're going to do it, the more likely that you create like a cadre of re- violent revolutionaries, the more you just get into this solid attrition situation which goes on for years and years and there's all these guerrilla movements where you know they've been in the jungle for 40 years you can't get rid of them but there's no way they can win and winning just to remember is what the name of the game is so to summarize like the engagement in this culture of violence in other words there's not violence by itself there's not a thing at all called violence violence by definition is the culture of violence the culture of violence by definition is the process through which the space degenerates in terms of the levels of connectivity and sociability in the space that's that's the um, that's the reality Vi- violence is is a system of belief it's a social construction it's a, a mode of operation that that rules social interactions. I'm in charge, you do this, you get out of the way, right? As opposed to here we are all together and we're in this community of connection. You know I'm in my community, I'm in my community of violence, so yeah there's a community but it happens to be overbonded. it happens to be exclusive, it happens to actually exclude the people in your own space and it ex- obviously excludes and over the people you're opposed to. People generally don't like getting hurt when you blow up that police station, uh, when you blow up the pipeline and people don't know who's done it and people, you know, <laughs> dare I say it, lots of working-class people can't put their heating on because the pipeline's been blown up. Don't deceive yourself. That these things don't have major consequences. Okay, so what I'm moving towards here is, if we use this paradigm of sociability, violence is not a tool. What violence is, is, is something that's totally a taboo, becomes totally a taboo once you use the para- In the same way as you know, any revolutionary movement, at least in the last 50 years, is not going to suggest making slaves out of the people they they capture. They're not going to engage in child abuse. They're not going to uh, be misogynistic in an extreme way. They're not going to go and rape the wives of the police people. Um, why not? Well, we can use empirical information to say that oh, would be counterproductive, but that's not the real thing that's going on. The real thing is it's utterly violates the whole the whole paradigm of what you're trying to do. And engaging in violence, the violent sort of culture, is another step that twenty first century revolution has to grapple with and overcome and move on from. That the whole culture of violence, the whole act of going in the street and throwing stones, the whole act of uh, blowing things up is actually like, it's an oxymoron, right? Revolution is fundamentally, in the 21st century, fundamentally uh, violated the core of the proposition is violated by this process of degeneration of the social space which is created by the culture of violence which is what violence is okay so we had this right you remember this so you know for those of you on the podcast there's one group us, there's another group them and you wallop them with this thing which is violence or non-violence with a tool so that's not the reality, this is the new paradigm. The new paradigm is us and them are actually in the same, sorry, can you see that? Us and them are in the same space, right? It's the same space, it's called society. And violence or non-violence is not, violence is not at all, non-violence is not at all. Violence is something that permeates progressively through the space. And the culture of violence is a disease to sociability. So it's it's a bit like someone, you know, beating their wife. The guy says, I beat my wife, but I still love my wife. You know, I just had, I just got a bit drunk and she pissed me off. So I whacked her. It's just, it was just a one-off. Right, everyone knows that's bollocks. Everyone knows that that's part of a, Deeper psychological fuckness of that person, which is going to pervade that social space between him and his wife, and we know empirically that it's just going to happen again, and again. It's not a thing; it's it's a system of belief, right? So once you get violence in the system, as as uh, Erica Chenoweth shows empirically, once you have violence in the system, it permeates. Once you have secrecy in the system, it permeates. And perverts and destroys the whole of actually what we're doing, trying to do, which is to create this sociability paradigm, this sociability progression, this life world that decolonizes instrumental uh, rationality and all the rest of it. Now just as a little aside, coming to the end, <laughs> just as a little aside, I don't want to get really anal about splitting hairs here people love to split hairs particularly blokes of a certain age like me you know oh well what does that mean Roger you know what does that mean <laughs> um, <clears throat> if you have a, a civil disobedience campaign and a police person like you know comes and wallops a guy in in the face and the guy pushes him back I, we're not gonna lose sleep on that, right? Every now and again, someone acts in self-defense. Maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's not. If you engage in civil disobedience, you're in a complex social system. It's pretty obvious that not everyone's going to follow your nonviolent discipline. There's gonna be some guys, you know, in the physical space. You can have a march through a city. It's all super nonviolent. You've got everything organized, right? Well, there's going to be some guys you know looking from the windows and maybe they're going to throw stones at the place yeah it's messy right what we're doing here is designing for the real world and the real world is is totally messy okay so there's an, another thing is you go and block a motorway and someone's driving their their relative to hospital and, you know, they get there late and they're in a lot of distress. Maybe, you know, every 10,000 times you block a motorway someone's going to die. That's what you call like secondary effects. Yeah, that's going to happen as well every now and again. That These are what I call hair-splitting things, right? What we're fundamentally saying here is the central design, the central strategy <clears throat> the central training program is embedded in the 99 times out of 100 routine that we're creating this nonviolent culture which is simultaneously the same as the sociability, sociability paradigm. So let me just say one more thing. Actually, I've got two or three more things to say. <laughs> All right, so... You know, as you probably know, the, the Children's March in 1963. I think it's a really great case study because it shows so much about the messiness of the civil disobedience design. It's so instructive on many on many levels as a case study. So, as I have said, if you watch this, if you watch the video, if you read the book or whatever, um, you know, these kids are going through Birmingham to demand their rights, desegregation, all the rest of it. And there are these bystanders along the road and they're throwing stones at the police, which we sort of dealt with. But the fundamental paradigm is is actualised, right? And when these kids come to the street, think about this for a minute, right? How I would construct it within a sociability paradigm is this is an act of radical inclusivity. You might think that's a bit paradoxical because who wants to go to the street and, you know, have police, have water cannon and all the rest of it. But if you actually observe it empirically, what's happening is there's this like herding effect. And, and the, the health, the sociability is sort of working on several different levels. So it's working within the individuals because those individuals are becoming whole. Those kids are becoming whole in the sense that they're going, I'm not fighting against myself. You know, I want to live a life of dignity, but I'm scared of going into civil resistance. It's like poof, that's that's pushed away that internal confrontation. I am now going into civil resistance. I'm being who I am and what I am. And it's a joyful thing. Right. Secondly, within the herd itself, within that group of kids who are going out onto the street, there's this intensity of sociability, this connection between them. They're all going together. They all love each other. They're all thinking, this is it. You know, I've sat in this classroom with these people for the last five years and we're all feeling a bit miserable, but now we're doing the business. We're out there. So there's this ecstatic sort of thing that we're going to be talking about quite a lot. And unlike the sort of violent scenario, they're actually like got this sort of almost humorous, right, relationship with the opponent, which comes out of this fearlessness and this, this open orientation, which comes out of the nonviolent sociability paradigm, which is going, yes, you can do this to us. You can throw this water at us. We don't give a fuck. We're just going to come back. It's actually quite amusing, you know, because we're no longer afraid. and And this produces an enormous demonstration effect because other people come and do it as well because they're attracted by the fundamental joyfulness of what's happening and people see it on the TV screens and they're going hang on a minute you know these guys are confident they're open they're inviting you into this community of con- connection which is which is characterized by this idea that everyone's equal we're all human doesn't matter what the color of our skin is um so you see how i've constructed that there's the the issue about civil rights and the issue about um desegregation in a sort of reductive political sense is not really in the picture it's not in the it, it's a peripheral and it's a empirically peripheral in the sense that a lot of those kids maybe it sounds controversial but i think i'm right a lot of those kids are not primarily thinking about some reductive, if we do this we're going to get desegregation. I mean obviously they want to, have to live lives of dignity and what have you but primarily what's happening or at least a lot of them a lot of the time is they're going this is fun, my, my mates are doing it, I'm going out. In other words it's like a social activity, it's a cultural activity and you, if, if you're doubting this just remember that stuff I think I told you one or two podcasts ago which is the research in the United States that when people go to a campaign meeting, a political campaign meeting, 50% of them don't actually care about the issue. Maybe they don't even know what it is, or maybe they haven't even thought about it. But they're not going because they're concerned about the education cuts. They're going for a non political reason. They're going because their friends are going. As simple as that I'm going to this meeting. Will you come with me? Well, yeah, obviously I'm going to come with you because. It's this mutual recognition thing between us. Oh, I'm going to a meeting. Maybe I'll find my girlfriend there. No one really talks about that, but let's be realistic. A lot of people get involved in campaigns because that's one of the main things they're thinking about is I'm sad and lonely. I want to I be with someone. In other words, like, again... This is the paradigm, this is the scientific revolution on the revolution, as you might say. So I'm just gonna take one more, one more sort of like take on this, just to grind it into you. (laughs) Um, So again, we're gonna probably talk about this more, but, so what I'm saying is we need this ideology Um, it's a sort of dogma and there's already an ideology and a dogma right so it's not like we've got this nice liberal society and we're imposing this nasty Roger Hallam dogma into it there's already a dogma which is we're all separate and we need to work really hard and keep our heads down and not really connect with people and you know blah 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 so one of the reasons I'd like to suggest that the pragmatic approach on non-violence hasn't worked is because it's simply pragmatic it's not ideological so if if you don't know about this you know and simplifying somewhat in the history of the non-violence proposition you know which was broadly started by Gandhi in the 19th you know early part of the 19th century and there's roots to furrow and Tolstoy and what have you but broadly speaking uh, what Gandhi was saying is similar to what I'm saying, or rather, I'm similar to what he's saying. Is there's a philosophy of life, and the philosophy of life is nonviolence. And the actual bit where you go into confrontation with the British to get them out of India is is an out an outpouring, an out product, as it were, of this philosophy of life, right? And when Gene Sharp came along, he wanted to get rid of all that, and you know there's good reasons why he wanted to do that. So Gene Sharp was like the grandfather of what you might call pragmatic nonviolent, spirit, pragmatic civil resistance. And what his point was was saying, forget all the paraphernalia of Gandhi's, you know, believing in the one God and all this stuff. Basically, if you go out onto the street and remain nonviolent, the empirical support for that is that you're, you know, you're more likely to win than going out and trying to shoot the police. And to a certain extent it had success because since in the post-war period there's been a lot of civil resistance uh, episodes and, you know, a a decent number of them have won using a gene-shot paradigm and it's transcultural, people can read it and Muslims can read it and, you know, atheists can read it and all the rest of it. But what I'd like to suggest is at least since 1989, what these revolutions have done in the same way as the you know classically speaking as as Erica Chenoweth has, has shown the violent revolution routine basically just replicates the system okay 19 times out of 20. Well migrant migrant would be since 1989 there's been a lot more non-violent revolutions but all they've done is is replicated well they've overcome a dictator let's say but they've basically just reintroduced another system of oppression as it were which is the neoliberal system in other words they've just opened their their countries up to globalized neoliberal corruption hierarchy you know inequality globalization in other words a, a social system that's fundamentally as reductive as as authoritarian socialism was in the 20th century and is becoming exponentially more authoritarian as we all know in 2023. So what, what I think it's time to do is to reintroduce this more gandhi proposition, which is, if we're going to be successful in the 21st century and over the next five years, we need an ideology that basically backs up so that when we win the civil resistance struggle, as it were, we're not going, okay, so now let's hand it over to all the liberals. We're saying, no, we've got a fundamentally different programme of what we're going to create. Because we all know that the neoliberal system is taking us to destruction because of the climate crisis and all the rest of it. So I'm me- meandering around here a little bit, aren't I? I will get to my conclusion in a minute, but I, I just want to throw two, two other scenarios at you um, before I do my concluding comments. So let's just remind ourselves of what this actually means and I think the Harley Milk example case study is just absolutely central to how different these approaches are, the sociability approach and the closed stroke violence approach. Um, So if you see the film there of Harley Milk, Harvey Milk? Harvey Milk. Milk. (laughs) um go and watch the film it's a great film but like for me like the central moment in the film is or a central moment in the film is is there's this and apologies if i mentioned this before to you but there's this moment in the film where uh you know he's 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 the leader of the gay community as it were in in, in san francisco and um and the evangelicals in california are going you know we don't want gay people teaching our kids all the usual stuff and you know it's going to be a referendum and it's going to be this is it you know they're going to lose it because it's in the late 70s and what have you and all all these gay guys are going this is, this is this is an attack on our community and we need to support each other and we need to we need to come together as a community and 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 protect ourselves from these violent you know dogmatic horrible people and close ourselves off and look after ourselves um, you know it's just a lot of is understandable and what Harvey Milk says is no we're going to do the exact opposite notice that right this is a completely different strategy we're going to do the complete opposite what we're going to do is I am going to go into the physical and psychological space. Notice both physical. I'm actually going to physically go into one of these massive evangelical churches with a thousand people. And I'm psychologically going into that space because I'm going to debate with one of them. And this guy is going to tell me what, you know, disgusting person I am and how I'm, you know, destroying the souls of young people and blah, 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 blah. Right. And I'm going to do this. Because of the paradigm of sociability, obviously he doesn't use those words But what he's what he's going to do is is through the paradox of his humiliation is going to create connection and a whole bunch of dynamics are going to happen because When that guy attacks him and says what a shit he is and I should be you know, the most disgusting You know, don't die type stuff the observers are going to immediately sympathize with him. So it's going to create connection between the audience, i.e. the people who are going to vote in this referendum, and the gay community. They're going to go, I don't really care whether he's gay or not, right? This is not about politics. The psychology is that some guy who's nice and calm and seems pretty reasonable has been attacked by this really shitty guy. I don't care whether I agree with the shitty guy or not. In other words... The attack is the main thing in their heads, not what the guy's saying. And then they're going to go, Oh my god, this guy's so brave, he's just sitting there, he's got a thousand of this, you know, mob of hatred pointing towards him, and he's still sitting there being cool because Harvey Milt was a cool guy, right? <laughs> so empirically of a massively good mood because, you know, broadly speaking. It humanised, it socialised, it creates these social connections between ordinary Californians and the gay community. And it was a catalyst for the gay community to go out and talk to their parents and their brothers and sisters and all the rest of it. And it's quite well known in the literature that this meta-strategic move was what was massively successful in America because people started to go, you know, I thought gay people really shitty uh, but actually my brother's gay and actually he's a cool guy and so I think gay people should be able to marry we should be okay with gay people because my brother's told me he's gay so there's like that social connection as opposed to this idea we're going back into the ghetto I can't exaggerate enough how important that juxtaposition is at this moment in history in terms of what needs to happen and you need to have this whole palaver I've been going on in this video is to be is to be to try to get you to see there's this big world of logics which justifies Harvey Milk doing this stupid thing and going and talking to all these assholes in this big evangelical church. No, no, no. You know, and incidentally, this is what I say to activists all the time. You know, when we're attacked and going, invite them to a, a debate. invite them to a debate and obviously you know often they won't because they know they're going to lose right not lose on the argument not lose on the politics they're going to lose on the optics on the ambience uh, because they're not going to be able to reduce the connectivity and I'll be dealing with this last point in more detail but I just want to plant this idea in your head which is as you're probably familiar that the elephant in the room here is is you know what What should happen in South Africa where people are being beaten up shot? What should happen in the Ukraine when the Russians invade? You know, this is the ultimate question. And I just want to plant it in your head that according to this new paradigm, you know, whether you want to accept this or not, just entertain it, use your imagination to entertain the empirical notion that engaging in civil resistance will actually work. Not every time, but will actually work. Juxtaposed to the notion that if you go to war, maybe you will win, but you'll lose five years down the line because the process of going to war reinvents and reinvigorates the culture of violence, you know, rape, slavery, murder, as the overwhelming empirical evidence shows. And the last point on this is you might say, well, people are going to get shot. Yeah, people are going to get shot, but people are going to get shot in the in the war. Right. Hundred thousand Ukrainians have already got shot or been blown apart. So if you're going to design civil resistance in the Ukraine, I know this sounds really like a dubious thing to say, but you basically got hundred thousand people who are prepared to die. And you have to compare those two strategies. So, I'm not going to talk more about that. I'm just planting that right in your head because we're going to be talking about it more in terms of the global strategy and what have you. But, in conclusion, I want to sort of touch on another little taboo, as you might say, <laughs> which is at the other extreme, which is okay, so we've got this paradigm of sociability. What does it really mean? so the deeper sort of spiritual and intensely practical orientation here is that we're all one we're all one so this is like a metaphysical proposition i'd like to to say now when i you know if i say to you we're all one your cultural sort of default will be going oh roger's getting all religious or well that's a very interesting belief or well that's a That's an act of conscience. He's just being really moral. So notice that all those constructions basically imply this default frame that you've been taught, which is here's the real world where people are sensible and there's us and them. And then on the edge of this world is this other belief. There's there's the way the world is and then there's beliefs. There's the objective world of things and then there's beliefs. There's religious beliefs, right? And then there's the secular world. No, sorry. (laughs) That's not the case, right? We have discussed this at the beginning of this video. What there is, is there's historically situated meta-beliefs, right? That this is a table. Is this a table? Well, in some cultures, in historical periods, when they say it's a table, they actually mean something quite different to what you mean, dare I say it. Um, So we can do this sort of, Is it genealogy? That's one of those big words about it. You can do the genealogy of materialism. In other words, where did this sort of modern idea come from? Well, arguably it came from Newton. In other words, it came from physics. In other words, it came from science. And what that science in the 18th century said was there's atoms and they bang into each other. Apples fall off the tree. This is the Newtonian universe. And it like shattered the old enchantment paradigm of religion and God and spirits and all this nonsense as you might say and and you got this meta paradigm and out of this meta paradigm came the left and the right and they they had this ideology of materialism which was saying this is what the world is it's stuff and you overcome it and you go to war and you crush it and you create something more stuff and society is stuff it's individuals they're physical And all this sort of sort of business so as it happens like the core of that no longer exists because science science right science has moved on right moved on for a hundred years modern science says there aren't atoms right atoms are made up of other stuff and other stuff is made up of other stuff and then it's not actually stuff anymore it's waves or it's things that change when you look at them, it's all a bit complicated, which is exactly the point. So you can build a new paradigm, and the new paradigm is being built upon this leading-edge science, right? So the science is saying, or the science leads to another paradigm, argument, which is there's only consciousness, which is really weird, right? But that's what the science is saying, or at least theory that there's only consciousness is more appropriate to what uh, what, uh, quantum physics is saying, in other words modern physics. So what you had in the 17th century is you had um, Newton and then you had this ideology that grew out of Newton's empirical observations. Now you've got post-Newtonian physics and you've got a new paradigm that's built upon it which hasn't become hegemonic yet because all those scientists are holding on as it said in the in the structure of scientific revolutions so the new paradigm is actually saying we're all one which obviously as we know connects with ancient wisdom but the fundamental thing i'm trying to say here in conclusion is when we're saying we're all one when we're saying like us and them is in the same space we're not saying that because it's a belief. We're not saying it because we're trying to be nice and hippie. And we're not saying it because it's a really moral thing to say. We're saying it because that's the situation. When you violate the other, you violate yourself. It's not a, prop- it's not a proposition. It's, it, is, it is an ideology. It's a thing. It's the thing that we need to state with no compromise in the same way as in that interview with, with Aaron. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to move. Because if we're going to make this revolution, we basically have to have a dogma that isn't open to question. And that's a big problem, I suspect, with lots of people watching us because you think, oh no, you need to make arguments. Yeah, you need to make arguments. But fundamentally, you have to have this act of faith, this act of dogma. And the, the light bulb moment is when you realise that the stories you've been told are acts of dogma as well and not only are there acts of dogma they are empirically unsupported by modern research which is why you don't accept the non-violence violence violence frame we don't need to do go there because that's part of the old paradigm so just a final comment is um sorry for going on for so long (laughs) Oh yeah, an hour and a half. Anyway, I think it's quite important. Hopefully some of you think this is important. So I'm, I want to plant in your mind as we progress through the rest of these podcasts and videos. But, and if, if this is the first one you've watched, you've got to go back and watch the other ones. Um, is you probably got this predefined idea. Oh, Roger Hallam's talking about revolution. And it's like, oh, right, Russian revolution. Oh, people in the street. Maybe I'm not talking about that maybe what I'm actually talking about is I'm leading through this pathway of curiosity arousal maybe I'm talking about something that's a lot deeper and I'm not going to answer that question partially because to be honest with you I'm not actually sure myself right because this is a journey of discovery doing these podcasts I'm not entirely sure where it's going to go but there's a sort of tension between what this revolution is because there's there's an ambiguity about it right there's just this surface materialist revolution thing and then No, 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 maybe there's this whole way people treat each other. Oh, and maybe deeper than that, there's this whole deeper revolutionary change in a paradigm of of metaphysics and uh, the the fundamentals of how the world is constructed. And I'm fine with that, and I want you to be fine with it, because fluidity is a good thing, right? It's good. It's not like you want to know exactly what these podcasts and videos are going to look like. And, And the reason fluidity is good Um, is because it creates attention because you're coming into these videos or podcasts going I don't quite know what's going on here which is good because attention produces openness which creates creativity which which creates the ability to transcend the paradigm because otherwise you're just going to take your paradigm to your death right science progresses one death of a scientist at a time we have to get beyond that don't we and these podcasts and videos are for people who want to get beyond their paradigms and find the paradigm that's going to work for us. Thanks so much.